0: that notion of materiality of think and do and that it is an iterative process because I, I used to tell my game students games aren't inherently fun because it's a game it's, they're fun when they're well designed and design fiction is good when it's well designed and it achieves its aim when it's done well but it doesn't have an innate quality that enables people um, to experience something well just because it's a fiction about the future. And I think that's, that's my view. But again, I think that we shouldn't underestimate that designers do have a role in these things. And it is a it is a craft, and it's a skill we learn throughout our careers.
1: I, I always think one of, the, one of the key things that good designers have learned over the years and and by the way i don't class myself as a good designer i'm not <laughs> if anything a, a mediocre generalist but with a sits in a design school but i think good designers have probably learned to embrace the uncertainty you mentioned julian the the fact that you don't probably ever get the full answer to the question you were trying to resolve or the, the brief you were trying to respond to you just keep going and keep going and keep going at some point it's locked in to a certain extent but living with that uncertainty i think is really crucial and again going back to the sort of more corporate culture and organizations that doesn't sit well because you're preconditioned to you need an end point you need to know when the 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 project's going to deliver and i think that's there's a bit of a clash of cultures there but yeah, embracing the uncertainty is so important i'm paul colton i'm the chair
0: of
1: speculative and game design at Lancaster University. Hi, I'm Joe Lindley and I run a project called Design Research Works at Lancaster University.
2: This is episode 45 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast with my AI assistant Chester and me, Julian Bleeker. Good evening, Chester. Good evening. Second international trip since what, I guess, 2019. found a backpack that I haven't used since then and decided to take it with me and I found some travel receipts and boarding pass stubs and the like, that trip was to Finland according to these stubs. So now I'm sitting in Amsterdam's uh, Schiphol airport waiting for my next flight to Manchester so I can wait for a train tomorrow to head to the Lake District for a week at a thing called a design jamboree. I don't know what to expect from a design jamboree. I was asked if I would come and I agreed and so now I'm going and now I'm reminded as well how challenging I find this kind of multi-time zone travel. It's just really not fun, which is also to say that I really think carefully about when and, as importantly, how I do it. A round trip like this can come down to easily 40 hours, just moving from one place to another, not even at the destination, doing the thing at the destination, which is, I mean, it's just kind of nuts to me. I mean, that's a week of work, isn't it? So, anyway, the reason I'm going is because uh, Joe Lindsay and Paul Colton kind of organizing this event uh, in the Lake District of the UK. And I really like these guys. They are really thoughtful, uh, mostly academic people who engage in the topic of speculative design and design fiction. And I first met Joe while he was doing his dissertation on design fiction. And I'll have a link to his dissertation, which I recommend to everyone uh, who wants a yeah very particular kind of perspective on what design fiction is so why am i telling you all this well because joe paul and i had a conversation as a podcast episode we recorded this um a few months ago and partly in my mind was to put this together to finally produce it around the time that i'd be going to this event um and so now i'm literally going staring out a window to gray skies a KLM airplane that I'll get on in a few hours. Um, And uh, yeah, so that's what's going on. So this is my conversation with Joe Lindley and Paul Colton.
1: Hey, Julian.
2: Hey, how you doing, my friend?
1: I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I'm good. (laughs)
2: So nice to see you. You too. Hey, Paul.
0: Hey, mate. Hey, Julian.
2: Hey Paul, how you doing?
0: I'm good, thanks. mate. Right? how are you?
2: I'm all right. I'm all right. Just uh, it's easing into the afternoon. Been up quite a while.
0: Yeah, it's just um, the sun's just setting here, uh, but it's been such a lovely evening. Uh, it's, it's still bright in Scotland.
2: <laughs> what's a good What's a good point of reference for for this discussion? Do you think?
1: From my point of view, asking what's a good point of reference for the discussion? There's a few ways into it. I was thinking about this while I was driving over So, and mine and Paul's might be slightly different, but they will inevitably intersect. The interviews I'm doing at Kai are part of this project I'm doing called Design Research Works. That's all trying to promote design research as a way of looking at the world. And how I got to be able to do that is off the back of doing some postdoctoral jobs that came through projects that paul ran and those postdoctoral jobs and being able to do those came off doing the phd um the phd i did was supervised by paul and was all about design fiction and that started one fine day when i'd never heard of design fiction and <laughs> paul handed me a copy of your essay um so voice of <laughs> <laughs> reference points but it, it, Julian it's really cool to be talking to you for me because like seriously I've i am now kind of eight years into this this career and doing something that I'm finding really exciting at the moment but it began with that essay so thank you for that
2: that's very very nice it makes me feel really good I'm glad I love hearing things like that and, I, and I, you know you can I guess touch people and shape them in a way that you see this uh yeah it just it's, it's done something good so that's good then then at least one thing good uh,
1: <laughs> sure it's done many good things but um
2: yeah i'm humbled by it genuinely
1: so i guess i mean delving into it a bit more like i love the design fiction thing and i know you've you've done podcast episodes about it and um general seminars and loads of stuff obviously what you do with near future lab and so on but where I'm at at the moment is kind of, I guess, going a level up the conceptual staircase or something. And I'm, I'm looking at the broader design research world of which I would say design fiction is a, a constituent, a, a kind of fairly significant one, but a constituent. And what I'm doing at Kai is talking to people about this, this design research thing. And the whole point of that is I think it's under um, undervalued underutilized at the moment the whole world I think could do with a slight refiguring where the the kind of insights and the kind of way of looking that you get through things like design fiction were dialed up a little bit more
2: mm-hmm. and
1: this the mode we've been in is dialed down a bit so that's why I'm talking to people at can
2: yeah that's amazing so i I'm, I'm really I'm really intrigued by that that particular um, that thread and I would definitely be curious to hear. More about that. I think the way in which we imagine possibility, imagine change, or imagine other possible worlds or ways of being, uh, could use uh, a, a bit more ways of expressing those possibilities that are more about um, less analytical, maybe maybe less analytical and more and less kind of policy statementy, white papery, or even newspaper articley, or um, Hey, we need to conserve water. Uh, slogan signs and T-shirts, and more. Show me that world. Like, let me see it. Let me feel into it, as opposed to just kind of comprehend it. And I think there's a significant level of people who feel into it immediately, regardless. You know, just because they're concerned about it. It might be because, oh my God, I want a better world for my children. What can I do to do that? Or um, I'm seeing the consequences of existential threat at whatever level. It could be from I'm an AI researcher and I'm a bit concerned about the direction, or I'm just a, a citizen of the world and I'm concerned about, here in LA, it's a thing, too many people watering their lines every day because I can mm-hmm. feel into the consequences. And part of what I want to try to evolve design fiction in into is, yeah, along with the, the stuff that you know the corporate futures show us what we should be doing next stuff, which it's still interesting to me as a product design guy, as an engineer, but also, what can we do in other spheres? I'll just conclude by saying that um, I just got an email. I mean, I don't know what direction this will go, but mm. in a very short sprint of time, a, a month or two ago, a bunch of us in, in the near future laboratory, we're now like a much larger community. It's not just the gang of five or six. Mm-hmm. I, I got this email, said like, oh, the, um, it's not too late to apply for this grant from LACMA, our technology grant. And I was like, hmm, this could be an interesting thing. We have some projects. Why not? We've got 36 hours. Can we sprint to getting to getting this, this grant done? And it was it was a remarkable kind of like around the world kind of evolution of ideas and putting together slides and stuff for the presentation and responding to the questions. And the last thing that I was really struggling with, that I was prepared to just like let go and be like, oh, well, I didn't really respond to that part of the grant, but I just, I'm just going to get this thing in. And I don't really have high stakes for it anyway, so I don't care a lot. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't like the, the, It wasn't like when I was a young artist where I was like, oh, my God, I have to get this grant. Otherwise, I'm not an artist. Um, It wasn't until last minute they they were saying, what is the public engagement aspect of your project? And I was struggling with that because typically I was just thinking like, just leave me alone. The public, forget them. I just want to do this work. And it was at the last minute that I remembered. I reflected back on a few months earlier. I had been to LACMA. They had a big outdoor kind of thing. It was during when things were kind of letting up a little bit. People were hopeful and a whole bunch of us went down there and I, and it was to see a rocket launch, model rocket launch. Thompson, mm-hmm. the artist, was doing a little fun thing. So you bring your kids, of course. And I, I reflected back on that. I was like, that was such a beautiful 90 minutes just seeing people out on this lawn with their kids, the kids frolicking around and playing. And it was a rocket launch. It had such this kind of beautiful juvenile aspect to it. Things that I remember when I was seven, eight, nine years old when we used to do model rockets. And I thought, that's it. That's the public engagement. Public engagement is to workshop with young adults about how to future. All these workshops that I'm doing for Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, whatever, forget those guys. I mean, not really, because I, I need them, but, but do them for the kids. Just have this, like, how to future. No one over, no one over the age of like you know, 20 allowed. No enterprise clients. Just and I could just see a bunch of kids like I could I could almost feel myself going in there and be like, Hey kids, we're gonna make something from the future and then being like, Yay I just felt that. And just doing design fiction at that at that junction, at that point where the where the the, the emerging consciousness is still full of imagination and wonder and hasn't yet been told, look, you just need to settle down and pick a career. Is it economist, accountant, or you know, dentist?
1: I want to see what Paul's going to say.
0: No, 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 I, I, I would agree with all of that. For me, I guess, I, in some ways, my career is a similar trajectory in the sense of yours, Julian, in that um, we met about 15 years ago at DDC at the mobile uh, conference. And uh, my work has evolved from mobile into, which I always kind of view through a world building lens anyway. Um, I was more interested in games as worlds well than I was as narratives, and there the, was the kind of ludology, narratorology wars of the early kind of 2000s around that. Um, and so now it, those things are kind of mingled for me, and in some ways I kind of treat design fiction as, as a way of, of holding a mirror back, the technology, mm. in the sense of poking some fun through, repeating its own tropes back, but with a slightly playful edge, in some ways. Um, and in terms of, as well, because I, I teach a design picture studio to the undergraduates, that's one of my favorite things of the year because they are those more creative, fresher young minds who view the world completely differently from. The way I see it now, so it's become a, a kind of good vehicle of grounding me back into the their present and future, rather than me kind of reminiscing on uh, my political influences at that age and what shaped me over my life. I guess.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'd, I love that the rocket launches. Is- The site of impact i mean that's maybe that's too much of a too much of a pun but um i think yeah just talking about the excitement of presenting this or doing this kind of stuff with younger people as opposed to the the stuffy corporate client is is right on but i mean for me i'd sort of bring it full circle if you can get that kind of what i'm trying to achieve at the moment or is a my kind of unicorn, if you can get that vibe in the corporate room, yeah. then you've you've won. Yeah. But yeah. at the moment I feel like there's you spend half the time kind of convincing them that it's legit. Right.
2: Whereas <laughs> with kids,
1: they're fine. You know, they're playful already and creative already and you don't need to do that that groundwork.
2: Yeah. Um, and they're not looking for wait a minute, so what's the ROI and the KPIs on this? How do we know that we've done it? <laughs> yeah.
1: That's very- I was. I'm, scared, Jack, I'm I- so conditioned for it. I thought you were asking me what my <laughs> ROIs. <is. laughs>
2: well, if you have an answer, I'll, I'll put it down on an index card and just bring it out every time. But I don't want to be too dismiss. I don't want to dismiss at all about the, the engagements that I do end up getting with the more commercial, corporate clients. Oftentimes, I found and this is super encouraging that they get it right away. As a matter of fact, they're asking for it. it. Took a while, but it feels like now, maybe over the last like. 18 months maybe um they're, they're I, i'm not crowing about it but i haven't you know just because i'm kind of in mm-hmm. a in a moment of kind of professional transition in a way like the book coming out okay now what and these kinds of things that i haven't done a lot of any at all like kind of outbound like saying putting a shingle out saying like hey come on but it's just been all inbound people saying like this is design fiction thing could we could we you know how does that work and and how how do we get it what do we do is it a workshop is it what are you what are you talking about like they want it they're not just saying so i i find that encouraging
1: yeah so it's, i guess i might have a a question for you on those lines cuz i i found the same thing honestly in the last few months i've i've talked to a few groups that notable ones would be kind of policy think tank type groups around london who dealing with complex problems with people and data and technology. And I go in and say, I think you should do this kind of thing. I do a pitch and they love it. They're like, yes, we want that. Where do we get it? How do we do it? And that's where I'm currently falling a bit short. I I know I could go and do it probably and help them. And I think, you know, you could help them and Paul could. And there's a bunch of people out there, kind of specialists, but it's... (laughs) What I feel that isn't is quite a critical mass where it's just sort of built in to the to the organisational cultures. And what I'm concerned with at the moment is how do you make the transition? So it's it's just a resource that's there that people are using day to day without having to come to specialists. Is, is there a route to that or is that just not right? Do we need design fiction specialists to, to be parachuted into these places?
2: I have a couple of thoughts about that, but uh, Paul, do you have any, do you have any thoughts? Um, I think
0: you always need designers in the room to a certain extent, but whether they need to
2: <laughs>
0: to be design fiction focused, I'm not sure, and whether design fiction just becomes another thing we use in the right way at the right time. I think there's a value in that. Um, Coming back to your point, I think people do are getting it more. Some of, I just come back from a couple of uh, days in Manchester and uh, we built this kind of living room for the future inside the caravan. And some of my favourite, and we parked it on the street in Manchester. And some of my favourite interactions, though, have been with there was a builder working up the road. I think he was looking for a bacon sandwich, really, but he came to the caravan. <laughs> Uh, and he sat inside and he went through the you know and talking to him and doing various things and he loved it and it was such a fun experience to be with him in that space just doing that and then the traffic warden came and he stood in and it but it was those kind of more that reaction that was the one of the best things I think I think organizations are coming around I know We, I I pitched. I wanted to build a bike camp machine in to the research councils many years ago. It was a a kind of joke that that they were running the sandpit around empathy, and it. I thought it would be amusing just to pitch about we're going to build a bike camp machine, and then I told them at the end, you know, it's some blabberery. You do realise, and but it. And it seemed bonkers at the time, but over the years, it's actually become more, I think, made people more see what the value of the things are achieving. Um, And I know, you know, I I was working with the BBC in Mozilla this week, and I think, like you said, I think they're getting it more now, that there is a real value to this. And and they're being less afraid of being critical within it as well, I think. Whereas I think early on it was much the uh white walls and shiny chromium plated futures they were after rather than the messy kind of nasty ones that we were trying to um promote
2: Yeah I I really I can really feel that image of the fella coming down the street and just uh, <laughs> <looking> for, like, <laughs> like a coffee and a sandwich and stuff <laughs> But then he just rolls into it. He's just and he just luxuriates in the whole thing and, and coming at it, presumably not sure what the heck's going on. Um, yeah,
0: very much so, though. It was, uh, he was just, he literally was the builder on a side down the road, and he was, uh, like you said, probably looking for a coffee and a sandwich, and because this was a little teardrop thing, he probably thought we were going to start opening up <laughs> and serving at the side. uh. <laughs>
2: yeah sorry i was just gonna say that like that's one of the i think the beautiful things of like of a really well executed moment where you're trying to you're, you're going to take someone to a different place through some artifice through, through a bit of theater through you know but in a way that i think in a material form which is what i usually lean into with mm-hmm. when it comes to design fiction it's not prose form it's like now you're immersed in this mm-hmm. place and finding the way to make that transition through the through whatever artifice, through whatever nozzle or a hidden closet, or whatever mechanic you use a thing that makes someone wonder, and when they wonder, then they then I think they're transported back to that seven five six year old yeah. consciousness that's like just struck with awe at the wonder of the world, and when you can go there in your head, whatever's going on neurophysiologically, yeah. then you're ready to. Have a conversation to discuss, to ask questions, uh, without all those uh, barriers that are built up, that are accreted like scales on us, over time. Or oh, I don't know, this seems silly. Or you know, we're supposed to, It's supposed to be. We need a KPI for this. How else will we know that we're satisfied? How else will we know that this is a good thing?
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think I think it was the wonder on the guy's face. He was so excited by the end of it. It was just, it was just a joy to be in there. With him, and he was sat with his hard hat on, in his high vis jacket, in this little kind of teardrop caravan, watching all this stuff go on, and he was just, yeah, it was that almost I think, all um, like wonder.
1: Sorry, Paul, I interrupted no, you. No, it's all right,
0: I, mate.
1: I, I think with that that particular project, we haven't described it as this so far, but it's almost like room scale design fiction because you, it is. <laughs> the size of a room you sit in it and it envelops you and that that kind of material immersion in the in the magic circle of the design fiction I think like accelerates and amplifies all of that that wonder and it you get you'd call it suspension of disbelief in the in the lingo wouldn't you but it it makes that really really powerful the other project or one of the other things that was at this event had a, a a fairly standard camera linked up to a generative adversarial network you could take a selfie and you got what the ai spat out it was a provocation but it was in a photo booth and that putting it in an actual photo booth in an actual cafe kind of blurred the the lines between what was what was the provocation and what was just your everyday life yeah i think it's room scale design fiction i think is a nice way of
2: putting it amazing amazing
0: yeah. I think the nice thing about a room as well, you can share it and I think that's a really powerful thing we've found with with these types of experiences is that when the, somebody, you've got somebody to share it with and bounce off it there's a nicer experience because it becomes that kind of you play off each other's wonder and excitement and some of the conversations that we hear as people that go through it are just wonderful and it, and I think, I think that you know, that I do like the idea of sharing these things together, mm. so that, and having a scale and, like you said, having things where people can experience it is, is the key to that. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it's been a, it was a great couple of days for many reasons, and, and often those kind of very quirky moments of yeah, that somebody just coming along you're like, what are you doing? We could get a lot around Manchester in the area <laughs> there we were in. It, it just made the whole thing so much more enjoyable, really. Than, you know, I've done stuff in galleries and museums before, but you you get a particular audience, and actually the reason we put it in a caravan was to be able to go out, and particularly to communities and, and places that might not, Normally get to see and, and try and get to see what their reactions was. Um, so yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's been a good couple of days, which is probably why the sun's still shining for me. <laughs> That's
2: amazing. It's great. It's a a great experience on both sides of the the research people, I guess you'd say. The one the thing that um, I'm thinking of to the question you were asking earlier, Joe, is that. Um, I I don't think everyone can do it. I think it requires uh, a there, there's a certain amount of magic. I think it, I, don't have, I don't have a more precise way to describe it. That comes with uh, with plenty of experience and time with the with the subject matter. It's not like something that can just be taught with a set of very defined and reducible and non-malleable rules like basic arithmetic and I think you can you can come to that point through experience there's an aspect of it that it can be done not well just like a novel can be done not well or uh, or a film can be done not well is that the right tense I don't know not done well
1: <laughs> yeah I I agree with the point I, I think absolutely and this is partly the challenge I'm facing because I'm I think the one level of my project the the broader design research piece of saying we need to you organizations need to look at the world more more from this kind of creative perspective or be open to that that's one thing but then they I kind of don't quite have the answer yet and the answer that you just eloquently describes is that it's kind of like this is a it takes a lot of training it's like a muscle you need to flex it and it gets stronger and it gets more complicated and it can achieve more things you get a muscle memory with the material that is design fiction Um, and I'm trying to bridge this gap on the one hand I'm saying you change your organization so it's open to this stuff and then what I want to have in a couple of years time is something to help them along that journey Um, without saying well you need to go You need to drop out of school, go to arts college, do a (laughs) bunch of stuff that you know organizations can't just go and do. That's (laughs) not (laughs) a (laughs) bad idea. Well it works okay for me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, No, but I think um, often we talk to our students about being the reflective practitioner and that that is that notion of materiality of think and do and that it is an iterative process because I I used to tell my game students, games aren't inherently fun because it's a game. They're fun when they're well designed. And design fiction is good when it's well designed. And it achieves its aim when it's done well. But it doesn't have an innate quality that enables people um, to experience something well just because it's a fiction about the future. And I think that's, that's... my view but again, I think that we shouldn't underestimate that designers do have a role in these things, and it is a it is a craft and it's a skill we learn throughout our careers um, and that ability to kind of deal with mess and complexity and
2: uncertainty and
0: not, uh, yeah I mean, and, and 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 embrace it rather than trying to clean it up mm. but I think is something that is within the, the design DNA that perhaps is that thing you need to learn and embrace uh, both the part, kind of the mechanical aspects of the practice that might say you know these are the options of the way you might f- or format it or presented, it, but but it is not the same way as the way you craft it or look at the you know the nuances of it which i think
1: does require that practice yeah i, I always think one of the one of the key things that good designers have learned over the years and, and by the way i don't class myself mm-hmm. as a good designer i'm not <laughs> I'm, if anything a, a mediocre generalist but with a <laughs> sits in a design school but i think good designers have probably learned to embrace the uncertainty you mentioned julian that the fact that you don't probably ever get the full answer to the question you were trying to resolve or the, the brief you were trying to respond to. You just keep going and keep going and keep going. At some point, it's locked in to a certain extent, but living with that uncertainty, I think, is really crucial. And again, going back to the sort of more corporate culture and organisations, that doesn't sit well because you're yeah. preconditioned to, you need an end point. You need to know when the, the, the project's going to deliver. And I think that's, there's a bit of a clash of cultures there, but yeah, embracing the uncertainty is so important. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I, I mean, on that note, something you said a little while ago talking about the, the the grant that you and the, the near future lab team have put together over 36 hours, that was a really nice turn of phrase, a kind of a sprint in laps around the world. And I, I think that, almost certainly needs all of the people on board to accept that you don't know quite where it's going to end up but you trust it's going to be okay and you trust the the uncertainty that it'll it'll get there Um, which again I feel like there's a this is not to be too to generalise it too much but that feels like part of the DNA of the design culture and that's that's part of what I think Mm -hmm. the broader world could benefit from having a bit more of I think
2: There's something around this, this notion of uncertainty. I'm not sure where this is going to go. And, and that's exciting. That's where opportunity lies, where you trust the process and you trust the people who are involved in the process enough to say, like, man, it's going to be amazing. Whatever comes out the other end of it, it's going to be amazing. And part of me feels like if you start with that sensibility and you really feel that, it will be. And I think that's that's a, that kind of magic that indescribable. <laughs> mean, how do I? How, how do I know that? I mean, you can't say that. How did you possibly say that? There was a book. I I, I should probably go back and get it. And it was uh, it was called like, um, uh, close-in magic. You know, the magic where you kind of write mm-hmm. the things. Close-in magic, um, and it had it said on the cover. You know, it was like uh, with 127 illustrations. Yeah, so it's like they're playing into this things so we're going to show you how to do the thing. And there's something, I, I don't know, it connected to me in a way that this, a little bit of like irony is, oh, you can teach magic. But having tried when I was like 12 years old, that it doesn't just, just because you have the illustration doesn't make it work. There's something else. And that important something else, that ineffable thing, like, I don't know what you call it, that practiced ability to, what do they call it? Like, um, uh, you know, divert attention in a Mm -hmm. a very, you know, kind of important little way to do all those things to where you just, when you see it, you just feel magic. You're not trying to, and you're even not trying to find out how it's done. You want to just luxuriate in the warm bath of being put into a state of awe.
1: That's a beautiful image. I've been talking about corporate culture changing organizations and so on and that's maybe a thing which has to go into my kpi to keep the people that are paying my my uh, salary happy um but actually the bigger a bigger dream which potentially sounds crazy but bear with me a minute if you take all of that the stuff in that book and the the skill of misdirection, that ineffable showmanship and all of that that you get through the practice of doing magic. You could teach a lot of kids that. You could, Everyone could do it if you started at nursery school and then you did, it was alongside maths and English and so all on, right. and you had it the whole way through. And then when you're you're working in the city of London and there's a finance guy and you're like, it comes up in a meeting. Well, I'm just going to do this sleight of hand thing because it's useful in this meeting. No one would be surprised. And the kind of big dream I have for this, the sort of perspective you get through design fiction and the other design research sub-disciplines or whatever, the same thing applies. If you like get in early and people just know it's there, then you change the world, you change culture significantly. And I'm not suggesting I'm gonna achieve that through this project I'm doing, but if I get like 1% of the way or, you know, shift trajectory by a tenth of a degree then I'll feel like I've succeeded so that's what that made me think
2: mm.
1: but yeah you um I'm not sure I, I I'm still stuck with the same problem where something I'm trying to produce is that book but the book on its own doesn't do the whole job does it
0: <laughs> I was trying ponder what that you know, there is a kind of performative aspect of it that through that but some of the things there aren't the performance maybe is embedded in the way you've created it um, with some of the work we do um, or, which is perhaps slightly different from the kind of magician's performative elements um, but it's really hard to describe how that manifests itself in, in the design but I do think there are so many kind of little things and subtle things that often are embedded within it that don't always say the like like today which is, you know, why we've kind of talked a lot about research through design as an approach in that actually it's the process and, and how you reveal what you've done in the same way that the book does is part of Allowing people an in insight into those tiny little nuances of what a designer does, mm. and often some things that may seem trivial are that you get really passionate about, um, and I often find these kind of little details that often hook people into even a fiction. It's it's kind of little things that re- anchor them to something they felt before or seen before, but has a kind of quality to it that that pulls them towards that that sense of knowing that or or embracing the experience that you're trying to create um and i often think it's tiny little things you know it's not the big big whiz bang pop it's kind of little nuances that just kind of make them smile or 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 pull up a memory that have long gone by of something that they've seen or experienced, and, and it's really hard to define how you get that without being embracing it yourself when you're designing it. Um, to that, I might be getting a bit <laughs> down the kind of uh, practitioner rabbit hole here. Of, uh,
1: well, that I mean do- that that reminds me of when we've written about and talked about design fiction as world building like just adding that bit on as a a way to articulate it to other people and kind of structure the practice and it's for me that plugs into that and it's the little bits of the world which are often more interesting than the the central conceit or the big technological thing the middle and an example which again is just taking something from from sci-fi but in the very early days when I was thinking about this one of my favorite bits in um what's the tom cruise movie with the gesture interface
2: minority report
1: minority report so you know the gestural interface got lots of um coverage and you know learning from that is if you're going to have a gestural interface don't have it above head height (laughs) because you're going to get tired arms but there's a point in it where he he's got a cornflakes box and um He's trying to pour himself some cereal, but it just glitches out. There's an advert on the side of it and it glitches out. And that little detail, I kind of loved it. Was, it was getting me into the world um, saying, yes, there's interactive adverts on my cornflakes and yes, it doesn't work properly.
0: I was just going to agree. I think that notion of things that glitch are slightly aren't as smooth and perfect is the kind of messy reality of our lives. In it it's that things aren't, you know, it isn't that corporate video where everything just works. It's never like that. In our lives. It's kind of odd things happen that come and disturb it, or um, you spill something on your shiny new piece of kit, or whatever. And it, so th- I think people relate to that 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 mundanity of of your lived experience, and if you incorporate elements of that, it does ground it for them in a in a way that I think too perfect
1: doesn't yeah the the very very first this is a a slight um, tangent but the very first thing I tried to create and call it design fiction was not material it was largely constructed from newspaper headlines and the thing I was interested in was um, cryptocurrency and energy consumption but the, the little details I put in there and this was 2013 I think included that Trump became president, Johnson became the UK <laughs> prime minister, and there was this huge conflict in the <laughs> Ukraine. And, and it's just sad that those things that were meant to be my my little dirty details became true. Um, but at a, a, a different point, so this is p- potentially, we'll see if the analogy works. So I, a few weeks ago, I did a comedy workshop. There's this thing called Bright Club in the UK, and probably worldwide. You get researchers, scientists and people that usually hang around in universities and try and get them to do 10 minutes of stand-up comedy around their work. So mm-hmm. I did, did an afternoon workshop. I had two weeks to write a script and then performed this thing. And it, it worked, like this is, I've never done this before. I stood in front of a room full of people and they laughed at the stuff I was saying whilst <laughs> I was making a point. So I, I loved it in the lessons that we learned on how to be funny, one of them that Steve Cross was the, the tutor, who's really, really a great guy and does many things, including yeah. teaching scientists to be funny. Um, he said, often jokes will be something that's honed over hundreds and hundreds of performances. You'll try lots of different versions and often the best version that the really, really pithy perfect joke is way shorter but what the comedian has done is taken out all of the steps. And so rather than going back to the cornflake box, having to say, this is a cornflake box, which has got a tie in advertising deal with this person and it uses this holograph, whatever, you just show the box and you get it straight away. And it's yeah, the, that yeah. there's a sort of parallel between the crafts there that whether you're a designer or a comedian, yeah. you, you can figure out the shorthand to get the message across. I think.
2: I think that that's the craft. I think that's the thing that we're talking about when the question is like, can anyone do it? And so I think it's an interesting point that's like, well, you could do it. And presumably you didn't really consider yourself like a stand-up comic before that it took someone to say like, okay, you know, to sort of take you through how to go about it. And also, you know, a certain amount of um, willingness to do something that I think in, in some cases, particularly for things of that sort, there are all these built in or accreted over time mechanisms in our, in our psyches or whatever, where it's like, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't, mm. I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know how to, I just, yeah, I just don't think that way. Or I'm, I'm, that's not for me. I don't do that. Then you come up with these real, you know, complex reasons. I think you start scraping around. You realize like, wait, I'm saying I can't do this because uh, I, I might feel a little bit of shame if I get it wrong. I'm not going to do this because I'm embarrassed to get up on a stage. You know, like real deep down, you know, emotions that who knows where they came from. And I think part of the process is, is learning that that's what's actually going on. And it, it hurts to do it, but that hurt can be just like a, a muscle hurts when you haven't used it in a while or, you know, you need, it needs to be built up. It needs, you need exercise, which kind of brings me back to the thought I would imagine a world where, where I don't know what it would be called, Futuring design fiction, futures design is actually alongside of from you know, third grade on, or maybe it's just called imagination. It's actually part of the curriculum.
0: I think often the education systems though, do that. They kind of close more avenues as, as you go along rather than encourage people to be open, unfortunately. I know it's certainly in the UK where we segment children into doing... Kind of exams and stuff at 15 16 we're all really limiting the the way to think and the, I know when I even at, when I was at school it was like oh you can't do art and physics together they don't, don't they don't work with the the timetable and it and it's that kind of limitation that why can't you just do those things because you like them <laughs> but I think we some of the systems don't operate and maybe it's that lack it you know they're just allowing things to explore people to explore it in a way that is much more open is is how we get that imagination embedded in everything mm-hmm. so for me that's what design i've always liked flusters. the argument that design is where technology and art exist as equals with but intention and I think that for me has always been the way I viewed it. I've never seen the point of not being able to look at anything I I was interested
1: in. <laughs> yeah, you're a great argument for why imagination that is, you know, existentially vital. It's the fuel that we need. I always, I have this thing that I don't know, we seem to be quite a dogmatic world. There's lots of dogmas of this is the right way and this is the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the complete antithesis as, of the, the the creative approach that good designers tend to take and that, that this imagination program that you might have at, at school might offer. Um, I, I also think that a parallel to science is useful and this this was what my comedy Mm -hmm. set was about i was saying that scientism is a kind of virus that's infected the world (laughs) and the the antidote is some kind of something like design fiction Mm. but part of the underlying argument to that is this assumption that scientists are very logical and aren't creative and they just have a the the scientific method, this mythical thing that they follow. And if they follow it, then they will get to the answer, which is going to be right or wrong. And that's just, I think anyone that scratches the surface of it, it's patently not true. And arguably the scientist does, or good scientists do a lot of the things that we've been talking about. They'll get distracted by a tiny detail and focus in on that. And they'll learn, they'll learn the craft of whatever experimental technique they're using and through that come to some some great discoveries but I I think this this division between art and science is a a complete fallacy and needs a bit of needs a bit of disrupting Um, an extension of that vision I don't know if you remember this Paul when you were my my you were my master's tutor I went off on this part of that thesis that you called (laughs) part of that thesis you called Uh self-indulgent it was imagining a a university system that there were two options there was one that was very much built around our traditional disciplines and silos and it champions that and you get your kind of hardcore experts and then you have a parallel system which is just a mishmash of everything and I think in the parlance you've been using recently Julian it's a university system just for generalists and yeah I was talking about that as an antidote to some of this kind of artificial separation between art and science you should obviously have role swap once a week as well between the systems so you get some kind of bearded philosopher ending and ending up knee-deep in sewage whilst he's learning how to manage
2: that yeah yeah you know I do have a bit of a concern that the uh the generalist is seen is not really valued particularly in big tech uh, I've heard an experience in that world the sense that you know there's no place for the generalist particularly where you would have thought there would be sort of deep respect for the expansive kind of broad creative way of seeing in the world that I think the generalist really embodies I mean this is what I've heard quite directly and I suppose it's more a personal experience after having you know I had a successful startup and at a point I was looking for new opportunities and I naively thought that bringing the wealth of experience I had, essentially doing all the things, both as a designer and engineer, as well as the, you know, all the other challenges one must face and overcome, pitching, selling, marketing, branding, logistics, you know, ultimately successfully selling a company. But then you hear that the design org that you imagined was, would, would you know, embrace that, would, fi- would find that amazing, prefers less experience and more specialization. So, you know, you know, oh well. But... I think the parallel that I'm drawing from more generally speaking is to the, you know, Clay Christensen's the innovator's dilemma that you, you know, the organization gets to a point where you are no longer innovating on ideas and concepts and you become the organization becomes inoculated against new ideas sort of systemically, you know, without even perhaps knowing it. The business refuses to spend resources on things that don't fit within a pre-existing set of processes so you just create more and more whatever, computer mice or laptops or whatever, and do precisely what the market expects—only faster or smaller, or now in party colors, rather than something beautiful and unanticipated. I mean, this is the area that the generalist will see, the innovator with the expansive of creative consciousness.
1: It's perhaps an inevitability, you know, of design this the the job designer means so many things doesn't it and there's there's hundreds of thousands of jobs for designers which do need to be on a to produce the goods and there's another type of designer out there which don't produce tangible goods necessarily in a, a more like knowledge in the knowledge economy
2: yeah maybe maybe these are topics that we can dive into during the uh design jamboree thing you and Paul have organized coming up here so I guess I'll be seeing you fellows and what is it about 30 other folks
1: yes yes um yeah but um I think a, a lot of the notes we've touched on tonight I'd, I'd like to cover there and yes I'm really 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 looking forward to it and glad glad you're going to be there it's going to be academic heavy as things in my world are but your your um, perspective I think is going to be super super valuable yeah it should be fun
2: it's a jamboree
1: we could have said se- seminar or workshop or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be really good fun. And I, I'm, there's quite a kind of mundane outcome. If I want to you know, cross some of these bridges I'm talking about, how do you communicate these this value to the rest of the world? And how do you get imagination in primary school in the long run? But I think we'll have fun getting there, hopefully. It's
2: just even this idea of doing this, it's a, the jamboree. I think it's nudging towards that like finding other ways to do things of that sort. I totally enjoy those kinds of things. Like we just get people together yeah. and and maybe, you know, like across different kind of areas yeah. and practices and that kind of stuff. I understand you know, sometimes it's like an academic thing, but finding the way to have the equivalent of all oh, your your caravan parked there. like <laughs> Yeah, well, I think, I mean, that's
1: getting even more palpable or another, a new angle to it is that, the post-pandemic hybrid physical thing and i think like if you are in the same place as as a bunch of other people like really making the most of it is is important yeah. um and you can get a different kind of value out of out of remote meetings yeah. Um, but yeah that's that's i hadn't thought of that but i'm I'm glad you pointed out, I'm going to tell people now that the reason we called it a jamboree is because we're trying to promote a new culture. So <laughs> when you, <laughs> when you hear me say that, you know where I've stolen it from. Yeah. I
2: felt that. I felt that.
1: yeah I've, I've really been enjoying the podcast, by the way. I've, I've probably listened to three or four by now and they're, they're really nicely done. And, um, yeah, I've, i tried to, um, expanding my generalists, uh, purview i tried to make a podcast myself last year which which came out okay it was a whiskey tasting podcast
2: Hmm.
1: um but having gone through the the pain of kind of learning some of the craft of that admiring your 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 touch with it it's really nice
2: thank you i appreciate you saying that sure okay that was joe lindley and paul Colton. Some good old-fashioned researchers looking at the futures of design fiction, world-building, speculative design, all to make the world a more habitable place. Please take a moment to consider supporting the podcast over on patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. I try to make it really easy to do that. It's only $8 a month. It all helps me help you peer into this world, and it comes with an invitation to the private Near Future Laboratory Discord community. That's someplace which has some of the highest signal-to-noise ratios you'll find on Discord. So please, help us continue to make the podcast, run the Discord, do all the newsletter, and everything else. This has been episode 45 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast with me, Julian Bleeker. Thank you for listening. Seriously, thank you. It all matters. I'm Julian, and I'm out.